welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I am John Tomlinson and I'm here with Mary Brunton. Hello, Mary. How are you? I'm absolutely fine, John, and I'm delighted to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome. It's great to talk to you in this environment. Although we do mm-hmm. talk often in other environments, but great to talk to you in this one. Thank and you've you. been um, chucked in the deep end in terms of leadership training in a virtual environment, having done leadership training in a non-virtual environment. And then pandemics come along and suddenly you yep. have to do the whole bloody thing online. <laughs> so yes. I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about that and, and, and how that's been and what you've been able to do, had to do to make that work in, in yep. that less than ideal environment, I think. Well, as they say, um, necessity is the mother of invention, uh, John. And you mentioned in at the deep end and our first experience of really fully fledged virtual learning uh, as a result of the pandemic happened at the very beginning. And we were three days into a live course for ambassadors and that's ambassadors going overseas. So a fortnight course, lots of speakers coming in, lots of skills based training, looking at psychometric tools such as the strength deployment inventory, lots of group work and breakout uh, groups and all the rest of it. So three days in and we were all in a room in Whitehall, um, about 25 people, myself, uh, a stream of the great and the good coming in to talk to them. And like um, like an almost an iron curtain, it fell and everybody took the Thursday off because we were told no more live training from now. And it was extremely interesting because those three days were absolutely essential. The group had bonded together and it was people going around the world, you know, from Fiji to British Columbia to Brazil to Africa. And they had created their own little group. And it was very interesting because we had the program lined up for two weeks. But of course, it was all live. So on the Thursday, what was decided by the sponsors of the program, let's take one day and let's decide what we're going to do. And what we did was we asked the participants what they wanted. Uh, And our first idea is we can't proceed because the program that we've designed is live. So how do we do this? And we weren't acquainted with all the tricks and tools on teams and all these kind of things. And we went to the participants. And I think, looking back, because they had bonded really well and they felt they were very much a supportive cohort, they said, let's go for it. Let's just keep on going with this fortnight. And they came on board and they helped, really helped us design the rest of the program and change it to online. So we had the speakers, we got them lined up, we sent a note out to say how to, you know, project well online, all these kind of things, just a simple how to uh, exercise. We made sure the tech was all there and frankly you can't do this unless you've got a great team behind you it's all right for the facilitator but you need your expert team as we had in the international academy to you know press the buttons at the right time get people into the right place at the right time so we did all that the hardest challenge was to change the interactive management and leadership um session that that's what i was thinking that that would be because like if you're just having 
and I know some some parts of this are presentations by certain people and that's slightly easier to imagine online but as you were talking before you were talking about breakout rooms um you know discussion uh, and all of those kind of activities which are obviously you you design into the program to break it up as well just to give people physical movement change something different to keep them engaged and that that must have felt like a huge challenge at first I think it was one of those things that when you're in it, it doesn't feel like a huge challenge. If somebody had said, do this in a fortnight's time, I think we would have all felt it was a really big thing to do. But because we were doing it in 24 hours, just like everybody else, I think you just get on with it. And it wasn't like we made mistakes at the beginning. We just didn't know any better. So as you say, physically, people sitting there in front of a screen for seven hours a day, you just go bananas. And gradually, we kept checking in with our participants and saying, what's your energy levels? In fact, that was one technique we used. We gave them a scale of 1 to 10, and every so often we'd say, what's your energy levels? Put it into the chat. And from that information, we knew when we needed to take a break. And gradually, of course, we were scrabbling away in the background researching what we could do to keep people's engagement um, up and all the rest of it. We came across some great ideas because people were banging stuff up on LinkedIn, banging stuff up all around the world. We were getting making podcasts, all sorts of things. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. So the talent was out there. Um, So I cannot say hand on heart that we came up with the perfect thing. We were standing on the shoulders of giants, John. What can I say? Um, Well, well, let's um, let's talk through some of those ideas. Yeah. And um, first of all, I, li- I like the idea of the energy level thing as well. It would seem like that would be quite a nice thing to have as a tool within yeah. the si- the system. So you could, I don't, I don't know quite how it would work, but it would be quite nice to yeah. have that as a some kind of tool in there. I know with um, um, some systems you can check on engagement because you can tell whether the person's actually clicked onto their email and stuff like that. You can tell if they've actually got the screen in focus. But But yeah, that's still not quite the same thing. But yeah, it'd be quite nice to have some more formal way of doing that i suppose you could do it as a poll or something but checking in for energy in some kind of way like that where they put it in the chat or they answer a poll that's one technique and that's that's quite nice as well because it gives them some control they can say right yeah. we need a break which you yeah. might forget especially if you're the one doing the presenting because you're the yeah. most energized and engaged yeah, and that's such a great point because you are in it. You're doing something, and we all know you're sitting. And some people will come online, some people can't come online, and you really don't always know if they're engaging in it. So what we learn pretty quickly is to quite frequently ask a question to which everybody had to provide an answer. So give us your numbers in the chat for the energy level. One very useful thing that we picked up along the way was we would ask a question and say, what is your biggest leadership challenge as you move forward? And we would say to people, don't go straight to the chat or don't put your hand up. We're going to give you a minute to think and then put your response into the chat. And we want to see a response from everybody. So without being too schoolmarmy about it, we were trying to ensure that people were engaged. So take a minute, put it into the chat. And we we found that was one of the most effective methods, and we use that a lot. 
partly because, of course, it helps those with a preference for introversion. All this, put it in the chat, stick your hand up. Well, that's all extroverted action. And some people are just not going to jump on that immediately. So we try to remember the classic learning styles. We try to remember our Myers-Briggs type. We try to include everybody in different ways. And the simplest ways, such as take a minute and put it in the chat, and then, of course, you've got all your information. You can start asking people and creating a conversation. Well, I like that idea of the take a minute thing. I, I, I always feel when I'm facilitating virtually that there's pressure on me to provide so much of the sort of pace and the energy and the and then keep it going and and everything seems to take longer than than I expected it to. Yes. So I so I always feel there's an element of time pressure on me as well. So you you kind of almost don't want if if people aren't saying anything, it's almost too easy to just thunder on. Or if only three people out of ten have said something, it's very easy to just think, oh, never mind. I need to get on because it's coming up to 11 o'clock or whatever. So so just taking that time to just do it properly, taking a minute just to get that higher quality, I think is a really important point. But John, you've caught me out there because one of the things at the very beginning that I learnt was I had no idea how long it would take to do things virtually. And so I'd be sitting with a plan which was actually based on the timing of a live session. Right, yeah, I did this. Yeah. And that, you know, at the beginning, it was woeful, some of the stuff. You think, oh, gosh, this is this is going on far too long. Or this is done in 10 minutes because you couldn't say to put them in immediately. The breakout rooms stuff took a little while to get used to. Nobody was used to that. So that was something that didn't come immediately. So you're absolutely right about the timing. It is not a transposable thing. You can't match live for virtual so so that was a big learning point for us no exactly you can't just translate it from one to the other you've really got to kind of transform it and really rethink it that that it, it does it's totally different and you you know if you if you're dealing of a room you know who's not engaged because you can see just yes. you can just tell it's, you know you're there obviously yes. you can't do that quite so easily when people are uh, virtual especially if they've got their cameras on it's yeah. much more difficult to sort of tell and and draw them in in that way so that does take all takes a little bit more time and you don't want to put people too much on the spot and embarrass them so no. you've got to kind of give them a certain amount of warning you know mary i'm going to come to you in a second yeah. um caroline what was your point yes or whatever it might be but yeah so, so that's a great tip so just give people that minute a deceptively simple one i think and i think you've made that great point that to respect the fact that people might not be quite ready um and let's face it some of them will be away getting a cup of tea or whatever so you've got to keep things going without picking on anybody or not relying on the three familiar voices and as you know from your own experience and you you said it exactly you can't always take the temperature of the room because you can't see. And we can't fall back on those great things of turn to your partner and tell them something that you've been really proud of because you ain't got no partner to turn to. So it's really tricky. But what we did a lot of was that temperature check. So every morning when you came in, we asked them to use the emoji in the chat to identify how they were feeling that morning. How are you feeling? Use an emoji in the chat to tell us. So we started using the tools that were available to us that were different from the live sessions. And that gave us quite a lot of information. And that great thing that, you know, you and I know is essential. It doesn't always happen in learning. 
is the learning check. If you've got your emojis first thing in the morning, how are you feeling? You come back to them at the end of the day. How are you feeling now? What's the difference? What's made that difference? So you've automatically got information that can help you get the things that you're not getting in the way that you can get in a live session. So so we adopted a lot of kind of down and dirty stuff, to be honest. You know, give us It's a, very give low us, tech, isn't it? It's It's really kind of low tech. Yeah. It's higher tech now, you know, we have got the polls, we've got the world clouds, we've got these things that we've all got used to. But at the end, honest to goodness, it was as it was down and dirty as you could get and it worked. It kept it kept the show on the road. I wonder how many of these things we'll want to try and keep hold of if we assuming we go back to predominantly face to face, which of course might not happen, but let's assume for the sake of argument, I wonder I mean things like the chat in particular is something that I'd be really keen to find a way to keep the chat going. So you've got a screen in the corner and you can see kind yeah. of side comments, which are, are often really, really interesting and allowing a, le- a level of engagement, which you might not necessarily get in the same, or a different, a different dimension of engagement, I guess is a better way of putting it than you yeah. would get in a room. If you were just trying to facilitate a, a conversation in plenary, you would get yeah. a different kind of experience. I, I think that's absolutely right. But, you know, that's the summit and there's quite, um, I was thinking about talking to you and I was thinking about, you know, what did we do? And there's quite a few things. But what have you seen um, done in this sort of virtual environment that really aids engagement with a group? Oh, God, you're turning the tables on me. (laughs) Give me questions. Um, Oh, blimey. People are engaged when they're active. Yes. Which I think is the obvious point to make. Learning happens when people are active. Yeah. And therefore... Learning tends to happen through conversation or, or, or through some some kind of activity. And, and therefore, I've tried to, where I've seen it work best is when we've either used the breakout rooms to have lots of conversations, used that quite a lot, used um, structured case studies so people can have discussions around quite specific things. That's worked very well, including mm-hmm. in leadership, which actually I was doing yesterday, and that worked really well. Anything where people that have to take the ownership and deliver themselves the session, yes. of course, is very good for them, not necessarily for the, everybody else, but at least they're the ones that are active during mm. that period. So it's kind of, and even silly little things, depending, again, you've got to pitch it right depending on the group, but some things, just that anything that involves physical movement that you can bring in. So I've done things like where people have to go and get something or people have yes. to literally move closer to the screen or further away from the screen to express a, yep. a strength of feeling. Oh, that's a good one. Gosh, that's a good one. Yeah, I got that from this podcast. That was a, we did one a while ago with um, uh, I think it was I think it was Shirley Gaston who was on the podcast a few months ago. I nicked that one from her, but that's a good one. But any, I mean, it doesn't necessarily work with all people because it's a little bit silly. So you know, mm. but so anything that gets people active, yeah. um, and therefore, I, I I think this will be familiar to anybody listening to this. But it, it, it's essentially, it's about them. It's not about you. It's not about getting through the content. It's about the experience they have. All L&D professionals know that. That's nothing mm. new. Mm. Um, and mm. that's just exactly the same in the virtual environment. So it's just anything yeah. you can do to get them in. You know, every five or ten minutes, breaking it up with something, whatever yes. that might be. I don't know if that quite answers your question. I, I think it doesn't. It really, I mean, that's great. I'm going to pinch that nearer the screen, farther away from the screen. Um, I know we're on audio, but I just did that thing. I went nearer the screen. Yeah, your volume went up slightly, so people might oh, be able to have worked that out, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, John. And you've really reminded me that um, getting people up on their hind legs or 
to create some kind of physical activity, whatever their ability, is very important. And um, you've said getting people up and getting them looking for things. And we've done quite a few treasure hunts. And so we might say to somebody or to a group of people, just go and find something that catches your eye that you have in your place of work or your home that's always there. And it means something, but you might overlook it. It might be too familiar. And just come back, bring it back and tell us the story. Tell us the story of the object. So that's quite a nice way to introduce some physical activity, but also we're hearing um, storytelling technique. So all these things can be tied in, as you well know, to um, proper leadership management training. And you're very cleverly getting them to do something that might feel a wee bit silly, but actually you can build on that. Other things, and um, yes, and you also brought to mind very early on, I read something that talked about sensual engagement, which I'm afraid isn't as exciting as it sounds, but it's about engaging as many senses as you can because we're in a two-dimensional environment. Very recently, last week, I was working with the Department for Work and Pensions, and it's a series of sessions, and we do something at the beginning, which is unexpected. And... I asked them to tell us all about a smell that makes you smile, a smell that makes you smile. Now, you and I both know that smell is very high up on the things that link to memory. Yeah. And yeah. so they all told us wonderful stories about the things that um, they remembered through smell. And so this was engaging in another sense and bringing it more to life. And what we did with that is we then went on to talk about the importance of memory in learning and development and consolidating your learning. So there was a nice little read across. But at the end of the day, many of them said, I really like talking about that smell. It made me feel part of the group. I loved hearing about everybody else's thing because they don't get that sideline chat. So sometimes you've got to create it in the way without being too you can go off piste and it won't work so you absolutely said you got to know your group yeah you've definitely got to know the group and i think something that i haven't something that i used to do in the room would be if you had to split people into groups you yes. would ask them to line up in a certain order yes and the order would what you use to line up in the order would vary would and I, yeah. over a period of time i would try and make the question slightly deeper so the yeah. first thing it would just be by birth date, so yes. not not the year, obviously, but just mm. but just you know January through to December, and yeah. then that would that would always spark a bit of a laugh, a bit of a conversation, because it would usually be somebody's birthday or near somebody's birthday. Someone would have the same birthday as somebody else, and so you'd get a little bit of a chat, and you felt you deepened it a little bit. And then the next time you might say something like, "By your favorite movie," or "By yeah. your first record you ever bought," and you're getting a slightly deeper conversation that's a bit funny and getting to know each other. I wonder if that would work online. You could just say to people. I've never done this, but if you get to people say, okay, self-organizing order by birthday, you've got to work it out. I'm going to stand back while you lot have the conversation. Yeah. I've never done it, but I reckon that would work. I reckon that would work and I reckon it would be a good thing. And you've reminded me of some of the things that I used to do and particularly in the old foreign office, would get them to line up on the basis of the country they most wanted to visit. And then... Right. Uh, that would be your group split. And then in the group, you give them a little time to say, why do I want to visit that country? So, of course, you're building up that bond. So that could still be achievable online. You've also reminded me that when you're on when you're virtual, 
you need to be probably a little bit more conscious. You can, because you're in that two-dimensional environment, I think it's maybe easier to start making mistakes. And I remember one of the, when I began training a long, long time ago, when I actually was doing my training down at the Civil Service Training College, we had a fabulous trainer. But I remember he said, he, he was always lining us up on height order. And of right. course, all, all the women ended up in one group and all the men ended up in the other group. And then, of course, you've got, um, you may well have culture and ethnic differences within that. And it wasn't until years later, I thought that actually had an inbuilt problem. Yeah. Um, Another one I remember was... Yeah, that's another... quite biased. I think on physical attributes, I think it's quite a dodgy area to go into, whatever they may be. I remember doing the same thing on height once, and I didn't do it. I was, I was, yeah. had it done to me. And yeah. I, I'm one of those fellas who is, I'm taller than I look. And everyone, <laughs> so I always come out without people going, oh, you're taller than I expected, even though they've seen me standing up. Mm. Um, so I always came out quite well of that. Because I yeah. always got increased recognition for my height, so I was I came out of that all right. But I always did find that a bit weird because I'd kind of think, oh, I'm in a group with lots of tall men. Yeah. Again. And, and as you said, it's dodgy on actually several several. Yeah, areas. yeah. You know, tall in Western. You could society. do order of best looking, you know, or something I, like that. I, Some yeah. Ugliest got, through to best looking. You might as well just go the whole hog and just be as inappropriate as possible if you're going to do it on physical attributes, because. It, I mean, that, that's obviously a ridiculous suggestion, but it's not that far away. It's not that far away. And if if height is seen as a good thing in Western society, you know, there's so many yeah. things that could go horribly wrong. And the worst I ever saw, and again, this was not me. I was doing it with somebody. And you know, when you're up with somebody else and they do something, you think, oh, I don't know about that. And they did it by, please stand in the order. Stand is also, you know, you've got to be careful with that. Stand in the order of the number of bones that you've broken. I I, I was so astonished by Your it. own bones or other people's? Your own bones. Well, that would be another question, wouldn't it? So, yes, one has to be careful. So in the virtual environment, I think you've made a great point. I think it is quite possible to start using some of the old techniques uh, or tried and trusted techniques in that way. Some of the things that we've used successfully and certainly drawing from that first experience, and I think I wouldn't have passed that up for the world. It wasn't at the deep end, but that in some ways how you learn best. The look out the window, look out the window and <laughs> pick something that catches your eye and then come back and tell us about it. And we used that a lot and it was interesting because we could tie it into Myers-Briggs. What did you see? I saw a red car. I saw a girl really enjoying herself skipping. So, you know, what is it? How you describe what you've seen and how does that fit with? And we used it for Myers-Briggs. So you can see how that would fit in. But the looking at the window thing worked really well. I can just say I don't that Myers-Briggs thing where you asked to describe like a picture or whatever. Yeah. And someone shows you a picture and you go, oh, it's horses. Yeah. And someone else says, oh, it's friendship. And you go, oh, <laughs> your S, your N. I just think, oh, sod off. You just showed me a picture of horses. What am I supposed to say? You know, I always find those things that I, I find them quite annoying because I always kind of, I take everything quite very literally. I go, oh, it's a picture of horses. Typical <laughs> S. Well, I'm not actually. I'm in Myers-Briggs anyway. If, if you believe in it, then I'm an N. So yeah. um, I kind of... I, I bristle a bit at those sort of tests, to be honest, or those interpretations and, a little. 
I think you would be right to bristle. That is my view. I regard psychometrics as a two-dimensional tool. It's not a three-dimensional description of who you are. And I have worked with Myers-Briggs practitioners, of which I am one, and you are one as well, I think, John, yeah, I am, um, yeah. who would, in a group, when somebody did bristle, and there's always the 10% bristlers. Um, it's always me, by the way. Always you, by the way. Oh, I've seen other people. It's not You're not unique in this, John. And what they would say is the, the uh, Myers-Briggs practitioner might say, ah, now you're bristling. And that's because you are an INTJ. And I thought, oh, you're just adding fuel to that fire, aren't you? Yeah. That's the way to handle that. But it used to make me smile. There is some truth to that, though, <laughs> that observation, isn't there? <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, but it is, it, it's not the observation to make at that point if somebody's sort of um, finding those kind of, if somebody's finding those sorts of things to be a little frustrating, it's not best to go, oh, Typical INTJ or whatever, even though it kind of probably is. There's other ways of engaging people. I, I used to, when I had a PowerPoint on this, the first PowerPoint in my Myers-Briggs session was always a, a, a loaf of bread, a sliced loaf of bread. And I would say, think about your average your average distribution curve. And I would say, 80, you know, there'll be 10% of people in this room that think Myers-Briggs is the best thing since sliced bread. There'll be 80% of people that are interested and are open to discussion about it. And there'll be 10% of people that will be bristling even as I speak. And to make a joke of it at the beginning. And I think this is where this is one thing in virtual. I think the power of PowerPoint and imagery comes into play because you can get some very strong imagery. And we've all got pet dislikes. And one thing I've always always hated is when a speaker comes on with a PowerPoint presentation or without a PowerPoint presentation and they say, oh, this isn't going to be death by PowerPoint or forgive me for these slides. And the only thing I think of is it's not death by PowerPoint, it's death by PowerPoint presenter. PowerPoint yeah. only a tool and it's a great tool for virtual work because you can re everybody is very close to that image so I, I think we'll see more and more imagery being used effectively i would hope that would be one thing and just one final thing on virtual engagement and that is and you said yourself to get the group to take ownership and the old one the old trick or technique of getting the first person in the group to contribute and then picking the next person so nobody knows who's going to be next. And that slightly goes against, you know, leaving that little space for introspection or whatever. But it does hopefully mean that they're all ready to engage and they're taking control of the group. And it's not always you just picking them out to so find that very useful. So top tips that we came across from that first dive into the pool were to keep checking on energy levels, um, how they were feeling, and doing something about it when you did check and be seen to be doing something about it, then coming back to it later on. So you've got the measurement and the comparison. So that would, I think, be my very big learning from that. A friend of mine used to do that, by the way, in, in real real life training. I'm, that's the wrong word, isn't it? It's all real life. What do I mean? <laughs> Non-virtual, face-to-face. He used yeah. to put a board by the door and he would call it the crapometer. Paul Tizard, by the way, who has been on this podcast a few times, he called it the crapometer, and you had to sort of move your name up and down to show how how engaged you were at each or, um, or how where your energy levels were. Sorry, you know, during different points during the day, and and that worked very well. 
yeah. it's a similar I'm, point. Yeah, I'm really liking that. I'm really liking that. Oh, if only I could go back and do that. But you could do that virtually. Um, one uh, embassy, they used to have three plastic tubes in reception. And when staff left for the day, they would put a red ball, <clears throat> a yellow ball or a green ball um, into one of the, or they, no, they would put balls in the tubes and it showed, I've had a great day. That day was okay. That was a rotten day. And then somebody would take a photograph of it. And so if Tuesday was consistently a bad day, then, okay, what's going on on Tuesday? Abolish so, Tuesdays. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just skip Tuesdays. Get rid of it. If only life was that easy, John. But it was a fantastic measurement. And, and of course, it was anonymous. So people felt quite confident. So those were the top tips coming out and something we took forward. We took the best of what we learned forward. And then gradually we picked up more sophisticated tips like word cloud and polls. But the emojis and the temperature checks were things that we kept all the way through. I think it is those things that are not necessarily technically whizzy. Because I've, yeah. I've like they're, they're sort of they they have their place, but they, they kind of, you know, they're very passing. A word cloud is, is passingly interesting. But the things yes. that really kind of make a difference are when you get people moving, engaged. Those are the things. And those are some, as you said before, pretty low tech things. But they they need to be factored into your planning to your planning for the virtual which isn't just taking your face to face and doing it virtually it is yeah. really transforming it but it, it says any opportunity for, to do what we were just saying where you actually physically move physically go and do something or are active in some way that's yeah. more important than something that's actually technically whizzy yes absolutely at the end of the day if they haven't got the energy they're not going to get the learning i, I did want to illustrate this just just to end the conversation with some actual case study or worked example mm -hmm. and one thing that often comes up in leadership is imposter syndrome as a challenge that a lot of leaders face and in um when i've talked about this in leadership development programs over the years we tended to sort of do a little bit of presentation but quite a lot of coaching and quite a lot of that kind of activity so it's very one-to-one -one, it's very engaged it's very involving for the for the individuals it's not trainer driven so much i wondered what have you just using that as an example can you talk us through how you've taken that kind of objective into the virtual world my experience of hearing people talk about imposter syndrome goes back before it was even called imposter syndrome because it you know it is a a way of thinking that's been around a long time. Whether you're going up to big school or whether you're taking on a new job or whether you're going to be an ambassador, that sense that you have, you're not going to get right. found out. Yeah, I'm going to get, this is where they find me out. How often as a coach have I heard people say that? And I'm an executive coach with the senior civil service working across the civil service. And I was involved in coaching training within the foreign office. And to be honest, John, more and more I'm hearing people talk about feeling as if they are an imposter as they move into a new role or they move up to a new level. And that seems to be something that has increased certainly over the last 18 months. And I'm wondering if it is because people haven't been able to get 
that day-by-day feedback you get from encountering people in the real world. So you're in this artificial environment. You have to perhaps be more self-sustaining, and that can be very challenging. So if there is that little seed of doubt, and, and which is an important thing to have, I mean, if we didn't have that seed, seed of doubt, we'd all be going around doing very risky things. So my experience of it is generally when people are moving up to a new role, upwards or sideways or taking something on. I would honestly say, you know, when some departments have been amalgamated and people suddenly feel that they understood their old department from top to bottom, but they don't understand the new bit of the department because they've been reliant on their expertise, their understanding, um, all the jobs they've had. And then all of a sudden, they're expected to know about a new area which is not in their DNA, and that shakes them up a bit. John F. Kennedy used to have a great quote, a great quote from John F. Kennedy, because he was meeting people all the time, and he couldn't know what they knew. And he used to say to himself, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. I know what I know. And a lot of imposter syndrome through the conversations I'm having is because well, is partly because people are focusing on what they don't know rather than what they do know. So they're not reinforcing their confidence by thinking, I've had 30 years experience, I know a hell of a lot about X, Y and Z. What they're thinking is, I don't know about A and B. So they're concentrating on what they don't know as opposed to remembering what they do know. So a lot of my coaching is very simply getting people to take a piece of paper and a pen. And I'm a great one for getting people to write down and get off their keyboards, because as we were talking about, it's another physical activity, which is a bit different, and write down everything they've ever done and everything they've ever achieved, but in a very speed writing activity. And then to look back on that and then pick out the highlights and then talk about what they're proud of and then just get them to listen to themselves. Because imposter syndrome is the feeling, the sense that I know my little bit of things and everybody else knows that. Because if I know it, that's, you know, everybody knows. You don't value what you can do so much, do you? Yeah, exactly. Everybody else knows that and they know loads of other stuff as well. So, you know, who am I? Who am I? to go into meeting of directors uh, and front them up. And there's some lovely diagrams out there that would express imposter syndrome as a little circle with what I know. You're a little circle, but you're surrounded by this huge big circle that's what I think everybody else knows. So I'm just this tiny thing and everybody knows more than me. Whereas the reality is you will know stuff that nobody else knows. Nobody else knows what you know, absolutely everything, because you are unique. There will be a crossover. Your line manager should know what you know to an extent, but they might not know the minutiae of what you're doing. Other colleagues will know something of what you know. Outsiders might know something of what they know, and they bring something to the party. So a better way, and often talking to people about the reality of imposter syndrome, is a Venn diagram where you are in the middle but you've got overlapping circles round about you. So we've all got something to share, but it's not a case that everybody knows more than you do. 
And this can be very helpful, just, just getting people to talk. What does it, I mean, it's bandied about all the time. So just say, what does that mean for you? What, what does that mean? What is the imposter? Who, what makes you feel that? What makes you think that? So breaking it down. But it is in the conversation much more than it has been in the past, I have to say, John. Yeah, that's why I thought it'd be an interesting example. And I think you're right. It's because you have to be so much more self-reliant. And mm. I think your work becomes something which is the, the sort of the task side of a role just becomes so much more isolated from the yeah. relationship side of a role. And I think when you're interacting with people day in, day out, a lot of your work is actually through relationships, communication, interaction. Yeah. And it's less than the task element shrinks in percentage space anyway. And suddenly when a lot of that relationship side, that human interaction is taken away or changed the nature of, yeah. it becomes more transactional. The whole role starts to feel more transactional, more task orientated. Yeah. And, and therefore, a lot of us feel a little bit more uncomfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. And and, and I, so therefore, I do think it shines that spotlight onto it because then we are kind of second guessing ourselves. And as you say, we're, we're sitting in that little circle, very aware of what we know, what we can do and imagining yeah. this massive circle, which which is everybody else. Yep. So in terms of actually doing this virtually, kind of helping leaders with this, just just using this as an example, this this imposter syndrome, because it's an example we've seen grow in the in the in this environment. Are there any particular activities or techniques that you've used which you've found have worked really well in in the virtual environment? I mean, you've mentioned coaching, of course, but beyond that, yes, I would certainly say getting people to engage with their thoughts in a different way, such as, as I've mentioned, writing things down. So that's speed writing to remind yourself of what you're good at and what you've done. So speed writing activity, highlighting what you're good at and getting pen to paper. I've had a lot of mileage on that. The other thing, um, just exactly thinking about your question, one of the things that I worked a lot on, and it, Many psychometrics come into this, but but more generally, I would describe it as getting the person to identify what they feel they are valued for. So if someone says, oh, you know, I've always been valued for my problem solving activities. I've always been valued for my people skills. I am a people person. I've never quite known what that is, but I am valued for building relationships and and creating a great team. I am valued for being a problem solver. I am valued for my negotiation skills. And in the virtual world, it's difficult to recalibrate to ensure that you can still see yourself providing that value. So if somebody no longer can see all the people in their team and nurture them in the way they want. What I found is when you get people talking about what am I valued for, quite often they're coming to the point of saying, I can't see myself providing that value as much. And then we're moving on to things like, what am I good for? Absolutely nothing. So what they have been able to offer or feel they've been able to offer is now less obvious in the virtual world. You can't see that smile on that person's face. You can't walk down the corridor and stop because somebody's in tears. You can't feed that sense of self-worth, to be honest. Um, and of course, you and I know, both know that the um, tool strength deployment inventory 
goes a lot on self-worth. What do you do that feeds your own self-worth? And I think in the virtual world, it's harder to feed that sense of self-worth. And that starts undermining your confidence. And then we're moving into imposter syndrome. One technique I would say that I use a lot is, well, I use my, you and I, listening skills are paramount to anything that we do. But what I've noticed is there's a lot of big generalized statements now from people. There always has been, but more so. And when people are saying, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know what value I'm bringing anymore. I'm rubbish at what I'm doing. And they've really generalized right up to very negative statements. Instead of thinking, this is ambiguous. This world is ambiguous for everybody. It's constantly changing. It's been a dreadful 18 months. It's not surprising. I'm not maybe as confident as I used to be. So I'm looking, I'm hearing a lot of generalized catastrophic type thinking really chunking up to the point where people are dismissing their own qualities. So I'm working a lot around catastrophic thinking, generalizations, bringing it back down, bringing back into the positive. What have you done? What have you achieved? So there's a lot around the way I think people are thinking. And I don't think that's about the jobs we're doing. I think that's the world we're living in. I think it's really a scary world and people are bunkering down in some ways and feeling nervous. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the How the life we now tend to lead, a lot of us are now leading in, in our work lives in being much more physically remote from each other, working virtually a lot of the time, how that's feeding into different learning needs yeah. that initially were all interpreted as technical to some extent to use the equipment but then kind of well-being resiliency but actually yeah. we're kind of getting beyond that a little bit not entirely but we're moving a little bit beyond that there's a lot of talk about hybrid working and how that might work of course and making sure that everybody's included mm. but now we're going into a different area of how, how it affects our kind of behavioral skills those yeah. so-called soft skills and how that affects our, our ability to lead and stuff like that, which is now starting to be recognized. So it's kind of almost getting everywhere, moving away from do you know how to use Teams or Zoom or whatever to, you know, look after yourself, go for a walk, have, you know, keep moving to, you know, really kind of changing how you do your job. And it does make it, it, it is different and it does impact us in our ability to do our job as L&D people. But also, as you say, we, we actually are meeting different challenges now from people. It's it's very interesting time and and a, and a a slightly unsatisfying time because at the end of the day, people like me and you, Mary, like being in training rooms yeah. <laughs> and it's not the same being on the end of a, a Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, it's fascinating, but at the same time, a little frustrating. I mean, I think that's, it's really interesting having a conversation about it. It's fantastic. And it's really, you know, I've already picked up um, tips that I'm going to be using. But it's also great just to talk about it and think about it. And just one of the things that, that just struck me there is because our worlds now, our working worlds and our, our real worlds, the, it, the, the boundaries have bled into each other. Um, and I think, again, that's a challenge um, because if the other things in your life are not going so well, and all you're doing is sitting at your kitchen table, that's really a challenge now because we haven't got that that environment we go to and we don't have that the nurturing colleagues around about us. So I think you're absolutely right. It's it's extremely challenging. And how Yeah, because does... I mean, we used to talk about having a third place. Do you remember? Because you'd have your home life and your persona you were at home, your work life, the persona, and then you had to have a third place. 
And now we don't even have a second place. No. Never mind a third place. You know, so I say we, obviously, I'm talking, not every, some people have probably do, but a lot of people have actually had that second place taken away, that kind of opportunity to, to be the work persona. And to be of their best in a work persona, sometimes people are quite different in these different rooms. That sure. That well, you have to be. Yeah. You have to be. I mean, people, you know, as, as you're saying, I can be training ambassadors in the morning and then getting told off in the afternoon because I took a blanket out of a cupboard without, <laughs> without asking. It actually happened at the weekend. <laughs> or you have to change personas, you know. Yeah. And then the dog's looking at you and saying, have you fed me? This is the most important thing in the world at this moment. Um, and and just, she has just been like, fed. She has been fed. I, I checked. I, I, trust, I trusted you on that, John. And just, I think... Um, just in case anybody's wondering why we're talking about that, I have edited that bit out of the podcast where I went off to check if the dog had been fed. So that might be confusing to the listener. <laughs> I think everybody's been in that kind of situation, indeed. And just thinking, just picking up on a, a point that you made there, which I think is extremely well made, that people will people will engage with this whole learning process in different ways. Um, and if we're going back, right back to Hanny and Mumford, and one might very broadly say that the reflector and the theorist may be able to engage and grasp virtual learning in, um, in certainly in a different way. Will it be better? I don't know. But it might be easier for them to engage with it than the activist and the pragmatist. And I think it's for any facilitator or leader or group to remember that we have to conscious, I think we're in the area of consciously remembering these things now, as opposed to it's not going to be really, we would do it in the classroom unconsciously, but it's the consciousness we now have to bring to learning and development virtually because we're not getting the input and the information and the evidence that helps us do the things we would naturally do in the classroom. So I think it's the consciousness and the awareness of the fact we have to do certain things differently um, and perhaps more of some things, less of others, to really ensure that everybody's getting the best they can from any session online. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to um, skate slightly over your reference to Honey and Mumford learning styles. We do actually have a podcast in this series where we trash them. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, not going to, <laughs> but I'm, going to, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. But um, but um, thanks very much for your time today, Mary. It's been a really interesting conversation and a great way of exchanging ideas about how we survive in the virtual world and how we deliver learning training in the virtual world as well. Um, it's been my pleasure, and yes, I'm, I'm showing my uh, I'm showing my credentials there with Honey and Mumford. I always thought if I did get a dog, if I got two dogs, I could call them Honey and Mumford. That'd be quite nice names for dogs. That's probably the best application of Honey and Mumford I've heard. <laughs> John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, and um, it's lovely thinking of you in Madrid while I'm in London. Um, and there's an advantage. There's an advantage of virtual uh, work that we can join our colleagues around the world and engage in this fantastic way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Mary. My pleasure, John. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs>